This episode is brought to you by Aircraft Accessories of Oklahoma. When it's time for an aircraft component inspection, overhaul, repair, or replacement, you need experienced technicians you can trust and friendly service you can count on. Aircraft Accessories of Oklahoma, a family-owned business since 1959, delivers just that. Our techs have real-world experience and provide sales, service, and overhaul for piston engine aircraft accessories. We also have limited turbine capabilities such as fuel pumps, starter generators, and prop governors. And we can overhaul propellers ranging from fixed pitch to turbine. Propeller pickup and delivery service is available. And one more thing, mention this podcast to receive 5% off your next sale, service, or overhaul. Visit aircraftaccessoriesofok.com. This podcast is sponsored by Genesis Aerosystems, a Moog company and leading provider of autopilots for rotor and fixed-wing aircraft. The Genesis STEC 5000 is the latest digital autopilot providing increased safety plus decreased pilot workload. It's being certified for Part 23 and Part 25 retrofit aircraft such as high-performance turboprop and turbine jet aircraft. To learn more about the STEC 5000, visit genesis-aerosystems.com. This week on Hangar Talk, Doc has a new home. And Robinson Helicopter sets a record. Also, AOPA with some friends in high places. And UAVNX Transcoder in the news again. All right, Dave, you ready to do some Hangar Talk? Let's do some Hangar Talk, Ian. From AOPA, your freedom to fly. This is Hangar Talk. Yeah, 1056, turn right, heading 130, contact final 1324. Turn right, With your hosts, Ian Twombly and David Tulitz. This is Hangar Talk. Welcome to Hangar Talk, everybody. I'm Ian Twombly. And I'm David Tulis. And David, um, you had the great fortune, uh, a great trip. You went down to first flight and you went, met up with the Ranger there, Amy Ginever. Yeah, Amy Ginever told us a lot about the Wright Brothers National Memorial down at uh, Kitty Hawk in Nags Head, North Carolina, on the Outer Banks. And I must uh, tell our podcast listeners that I misspoke, and I was calling it the uh, the Wright Brothers National Monument. Well, there is a monument there, Ian. It's a 60-foot-tall monument above Kill Devil Hill. Mm. But she told us all about the new visitor center, and it's a great place to go. And if you have not flown to First Flight Airport, it's a trip. Yeah, it is awesome. Awesome. A great time. So uh, we're looking forward to that in a few minutes. But uh, I know you guys have something running online, too, that's uh, pretty exciting. Yeah, we do. Um, For online, uh, for folks who want to vote on their favorite classic aircraft, we've got a little poll going right now. And you guys uh, who are listening to us on the podcast, hopefully you'll have the results by then. If not, and if if you get a quick jump on this, Go ahead to the AOPA Your Freedom to Fly Facebook site. Take a look there for the classic general aviation aircraft poll. Now, we had to redefine what a classic aircraft is, Ian. It's going to be prior to December 31st, 1960, so we can include some of the popular models that people really relate to, some of the Cessna models and some of the Pipers, because the judging criteria for a classic aircraft kind of ends in 1955. Hmm. Okay, great. Well, I'm going to make sure and go on and uh, vote for the J3 Cub myself. Um, but yeah, check that out. Do you want me to tell anyone who's leading the pack, or we just let that be a surprise? Oh, let it, let's let it be a surprise. You got it. <laughs> All right, let's get right to it. Doc, the B-29, hopefully you've gotten a chance to see this, maybe at Oshkosh or another air show. Um, but just as important, I think, as going out to those air shows is, is having a nice home where people can come and, and see him. And uh, now they've opened that. 
Yeah, uh, Tom Haynes had the pleasure to go out to Wichita, and so there's a new home for Doc, the B-29. It's at Wichita Dwight D. Eisenhower National Airport, and it's a bright, airy new hangar. And the key thing, uh, Ian, is that I think that some younger people are going to get exposed to aviation this way because there's going to be some science, technology, engineering, and math projects going on around there. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And so the hangar will be a nice uh, tribute to all of the volunteer work that went into making Doc Flyable again, and then obviously all the corporate sponsors, including Boeing, Spirit, and some GA companies like Yangling. And they are still looking for some help to make that STEM stuff happen for young folks. So if you want to help, uh, you can go on to uh, b29doc.com and become a friend of Doc and help educate the future generation. That's right. They, they still need, the Doc's Friends organization still needs to raise about $800,000 to secure the future of this very important project. And I did not know this, Ian, but a Doc was out in the desert with its tail cut off. Yeah. And I just, I had forgotten about that history. And so this really is a heroic effort that has rescued this aircraft. And if you have not seen it fly around, which I was lucky to see it, see Doc fly over at uh, AirVenture, it is really is a, is a trip and it is a huge aircraft. Yeah, it is an impressive aircraft. And so the new home officially opens in January. So make sure to check that out on your next trip to Wichita. Let's do it. Let's go ahead and plan a flight now. Yeah. <laughs> um, all right. So moving on. This is just such a cool story. Electric aviation, as we know, uh, mainly, I think, in GA, we're talking about sort of fixed wing and, and all the advances being there and fixed wing. But uh, kind of an under-the-radar flight that happened last week, really phenomenal. An electrically powered R-44, so four-seat uh, personal helicopter, was flown 30 miles all under electric power. That is really uh, surprising, Ian. And it's, uh, the, the helicopter came together with Tier 1 engineering. Mm -hmm. And so they had a couple of electric motors in this helicopter, battery-powered. And this is a manned helicopter. And um, I believe we were uh, looking at a 30 nautical mile flight to 800 feet. But the key thing is why they were trying to advance this technology. And you came up with this story. So why, why do they want to do electric helicopter work, and what will it, what will it help? Who will it help? Yeah, it's, it's pretty, pretty interesting, actually, the way these things come about. So Tier 1, this engineering company, is uh, obviously did the work on it, but they were supported by this company called Lung Biotech. And uh, the whole point of this was to do research into future technology that will allow people to be able to deliver organs uh, two hospitals, cheaper and quieter, which I, actually is a big problem. I don't know if you've ever been around a hospital with a lot of medevac going on, but it, it can be quite loud and uh, disturbing to some of the patients. That's really interesting technology. And, and like we were starting to say, the, uh, the semi-autonomous flight envelope that is destined to, uh, to fly in is kind of interesting. It's not autonomous, but semi-autonomous. Yeah. Yeah. And obviously lots of folks doing lots of really interesting work there, um, including Aurora, you know, with the, the sort of robot co-pilot and um, optionally piloted aircraft and that sort of thing. So I was surprised to see it in a helicopter, obviously, because you need so much power for vertical takeoff and lift, but really cool that they've uh, that they've made it that far so far. I like it. And I think that there's more yet to come. And as we know, electric is the future of aviation. And, and other folks yeah. have told us that Siemens and Airbus, and, and there's a lot of big money in that. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So, hey, want to move on. Just real quick to talk about as the new Congress comes into session in January, some of the folks that are going to be on these key committees that AOPA works with. Obviously, relationships in Congress are really important for AOPA and for general aviation. 
And um, the Transportation and Infrastructure Committee, which is one of the keys in the House, we've got some friends leading that up. Pete DeFazio will be the chairman, Democrat. And uh, Sam Graves, uh, a really, really active GA pilot and supporter, will be the ranking member. Well, that's good news for general aviation, and we hope that they will continue to advocate for us. I'm sure they will, because they be, I know especially Graves is an active pilot, as you mentioned, mm-hmm. and uh, that, that could only be good news for us. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, we've said in the past that aviation is uh, it's a nonpartisan issue, and, and hopefully we'll see that as we go forward with um, both sides working towards infrastructure bills, which I think are important, and uh, and supporting aviation. So that's, that's all great news all around. All right. So moving on now, UAvionics. Uh, we talked about them last time. You know, the STC came through. And uh, another interesting piece here is that they were just awarded for that piece of technology a patent. And and the implications here are what are interesting. We were doing a little research on this, Ian, and what what we figured out was that, yes, there are some issues going on between uh, UAvionics and Garmin, but the patent office recognized that there were important innovative differences between the two systems, between the two different companies. And uh, I also wanted to point out that the UAvionics unit is actually quite reasonably priced at $1,849. And for folks who aren't familiar with it, that is the basically the left wingtip light on an aircraft. And it's got an antenna on it and an integral tso altimeter that uses mode C altitude data to calibrate an internal sensor. So the internal sensor helps to minimize the installation costs because it's basically all in one unit. And you don't need to plumb anything. Yeah, it's uh, it's pretty neat. They, you know, obviously every manufacturer is going to go about how they relay this ADSB data and this transponder data a little bit differently. And so Garmin believed that um, the Avionics had basically maybe not copied but infringed on their patent to be able to scrape that data and, and send that data. And Avionics, by holding up this patent that they've received, has said, mm, well. Maybe not yet, and uh, so it should have some interesting implications for the lawsuit going forward. Yeah, I think so, too. We definitely have to stay tuned for this, but the the fact that the patent office recognized that there were these differences, I think, is a, is a key move. Yeah, yeah, and it will, you say, you know, we're looking to the future to see what's going to happen there, and actually right now a jury trial is scheduled for February of 2020, so this one could drag out for a bit. Well, now, wait a minute. If, if, if a jury trial is scheduled for February 2020, and the FAA mandated ADSB out compliance by January the first, twenty twenty. Yeah, the the timing is kind of interesting there. <laughs> yeah, it is. It is. So, um, yeah, as as people buy units of both Garmin and Uavionics, um, you know, are there implications beyond the the mandate date or what? I you know, that's I think it's too early to say that. So, um, but it is it is pretty interesting. You're right. Adds a new layer. Uh huh. We'll have to stay tuned to that one as well. Yeah, yeah. So finally, I want to wrap up with a, just a real quick note about graphical forecasts. Um, you may remember the area forecast. This is everybody's favorite topic, mine especially. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you remember um, the area oh. forecast went away maybe a few months ago, and were replaced with the National Weather Service's graphical area forecast. This is a really cool thing. If you haven't seen it, you just go on to uh, National Weather Service site and, and be able to see all of that stuff now graphically, which is great. But National Weather Service wants to expand it to Gulf of Mexico, Caribbean, and the western North Atlantic, and they're looking for comments. 
Well, I think that's really interesting because if you're going to fly in that area, like one of our colleagues, Jill Tama, just did, I would think you would want all the information available to you. And the graphical forecast is a little bit easier to read. And, you know, I guess our minds are geared more graphically nowadays with the advances in avionics and handhelds, things like that. Yeah. But you're right, Ian, that the comment period is uh, by December the 31st. So folks who have an interest in that or just want to get their voices known, keep that December 31st deadline in mind to comment on the graphical forecasts expanding. Yeah, yeah. So please go on and do that. Just go on to AOPA's site and uh, look for the story about graphical forecasts expanding to Gulf of Mexico and Caribbean. And uh, in that story, you'll find a link to uh, the direct way to comment. So yeah, absolutely. Make your voice heard. Sounds good. So um, hey, let's uh, turn our attention a little bit south for us uh, in Frederick, at least, uh, down to the Outer Banks. Really jealous you got to go on this trip. I've been there before, but um, it's been a little while. And it's uh, such a cool place to visit and feels very special to pilots. And so really neat that you got to go and interview the ranger there. Well, it was a, a great trip, Ian. And also for, for pilots who have not flown into First Flight Airport, that's Foxtrot, Foxtrot Alpha. And this is adjacent to the Wright Brothers National Memorial. There are a couple of, a couple of tidbits that you guys could glean from Josh Cochran and, I, and my flight over there. And you can just go to AOPA.org. And take a quick look, you know, point your browser towards Celebrate Aviation at First Flight Airport, and you'll have some of the tidbits there. But I've got to tell you, no wonder they picked that area. The winds were just swirly and squirrely, man, and it was constant and steady, but from different directions. And it was actually a challenging landing in a Cessna 182. But uh, we'll hear a little bit more from uh, Amy Geneva, the National Park Service Ranger that walked us through the uh, Wright Brothers National Memorial. And don't forget that this is a new visitor center that just opened up there at the end of October. So there's a lot for her to tell us about. So let's go now to Amy. Welcome to the Hangar Talk podcast, Amy Ginever, and we are here at the Wright Brothers National Monument in North Carolina. Tell us a little bit about the new Visitor Center. When did the new Visitor Center open, Amy? The new Visitor Center opened October 20th, 2018 on a Saturday, and it was a rainy Saturday, but it was well attended. The whole Visitor Center is filled with um, interactive exhibits, completely, completely accessible. And they are interactive so children can actually get a part of the story, become a part of the story, become a part of the Wright Brothers story. And visitors can do that as well. One of the things that is very neat about the exhibits is that if you look at the exhibits, they're kind of almost color-coded. So if you look at a, a red or a maroon color, that's going to tell the Dayton story. The blue colors are going to tell the North Carolina story, and that's in, intermixed throughout the visitor center. So you can kind of get a feel when you're going through the exhibits where you're going to be at in their story. Gotcha. And you know, one thing we walked up to you when you were doing an interpretive tour, and one thing I just got the tail end of it, I want you to explain to us how did the Wright brothers get invited to North Carolina, or how did they end up in North Carolina from Ohio? They came to North Carolina because of the wind. I mean, that was the main primary purpose. That's what they were looking for, was wind. They wrote the Weather Bureau in 1899, because in Dayton, Ohio, you don't have consistent wind. 
and they need consistent wind to do their experiments. And so they're looking for the windiest cities in the United States. So they write the Weather Bureau looking for that. They get a list back at the end of the year and Kitty Hawk is number six on the list. Number six, now they look at other cities before that, but what they want to do is they want to eliminate any city that's close to an urban area that has press there because they're going to try out this new wing warping that they have and they don't want anybody to see that. Sort of a secret. Sort of a secret, absolutely. So uh, when they write Kitty Hawk, and ask them, do you have consistent wind? Uh, do you have uh, soft sand to land in, because it's dangerous? Um, do you have dunes to fly from, open areas so we don't hit anything? The um, Weather Bureau, the gentleman writes them back and says, yes, we have all of those things. And then the postmaster even includes that they will help them out in their experiments. And so that's very promising to the Wright brothers. Aha, uh -huh. so that's a little bit of a backstory that a lot of people don't know about the Wright brothers. And then one other thing that you guys have at the Visitor's Center that, that is new is a little bit more of an interpretive background of their bicycle building experience. Tell me a little bit about that. So the Wright brothers got involved in the bicycle business in 1892. They were had their successful printing business and, and, um, and this bicycle craze was going on. And um, they kind of got in on the tail end. Um, Orville was into racing bicycles and he bought a racing bicycle and uh, they just decided that they would get involved in the bicycle bicycle business because there wasn't a lot of people doing that. They started to sell parts in 1892 and eventually it got up to repair and then by 1896 they're making their own bicycles. Oh, like when you say their own bikes, were they making their own, their own frames and putting the different parts on them or did they made like the whole everything? They made the frames, so they would order the parts. So they didn't make all of the like the sprockets and the yeah. things like that. But so, yeah. So are these like the 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 high wheel bikes, or are they more of a traditional looking bike? Safety bicycle. Yes. So the wheels are the same size. That's a safety bicycle. And the Wright brothers never made the high wheel bicycles. Now, do they have training wheels on their first bikes? Do you know? <laughs> no. <laughs> So, um, okay, so they uh, start out in the bicycle building business, and a lot of people do know that, and they got into aviation. We talked to a young person, a 12-year-old youth that was over here who did a report on the Wright brothers that said that, um, that one of the brothers um, had an injury from hockey and therefore learned a lot more about different things, different parts of the world and, and, and engineering even from books that his dad had. Now, do you uh, know any background about that? Yes, so it was Wilbur. They moved in his high school year. They were living in Indiana and in the middle of his senior year, they moved so he didn't get to graduate. So he was going to prep school because he was slated to go to Yale. And when he was in prep school in the wintertime, he had that hockey accident and knocked out his front teeth. And so he was home recovering from that and got a little depressed. He was also taking care of his mother who was dying from tuberculosis. So he stayed home and took care of her and read and studied all of those books. Do we think that that might have been the inspiration for him to really start thinking a little bit outside of the box even as a youth? I think maybe they were thinking outside the box before that inspiration because their mother taught them how to use tools and kind of encouraged that thinking outside the box when they were youth. Um, she would keep the, anything that they made, stick it on a shelf, and, and just encourage that kind of creative thinking. So I think it started way earlier than that. Now for the folks who don't know, tell us a little bit about the background of the, of the Wright brothers' parents. The Wright brothers' parents, their father was a bishop, and his name was Milton Wright, but they called him Bishop Wright, and he was a bishop for the United Brethren Church. And he traveled around 
quite often and quite often without the, he would take the family to different places, but he was off away from the family a lot of the time. And their mother, Susan, right, she uh, stayed home and she would take care of the kids. And they had an extensive library. So they had arts and sciences and everything in their library because everyone in that family was an avid reader. They were encouraged to read. So that was the kind of environment that they grew up in. And Susan was the daughter of a wagon maker. And uh, he would bring her into his shop and teach her how to use the tools. So she, in turn, taught her children how to use the tools and would make sleds and toys for her kids and teach them. So now I'm seeing the relationship, the wagon maker and the wheels and working with wood and we have the Wright Brothers uh, replica of the Wright Brothers flyer behind you made of mainly of wood with some metal. So they had a lot of that background from their parents, their parents' parents. So spin us forward a little bit, and now um, we're back here uh, in North Carolina. We're at uh, Kill Devil Hill. We're near, near the beach, and the brothers are here, and they spent a lot of time with gliders before they got into powered aviation. I do know that. Um, do you have any background on that at all for us? Well, so they came to Kitty Hawk in 1900, and they tested their 1900 version of a glider like a kite. The very last day they would fly it like a glider. Um, and then the second year, 1901, they'd come back with a newer version of their glider. They call it a 1901 version. And they ran into a lot of failure that year. But that didn't stop them. They came back the following year after they did wind tunnel experiments to figure out what went all wrong with that 1901 version. And in 1902, they came back here and did over one, they did 700 to 1,000 successful glide flights That's here great. And, and broke records. So in 1900, 01, and 02, they were doing nothing but gliding experiments. It wasn't until 03 that they started to do powered flight. So Amy, they came here in, in uh, you said in 1900, they did some of their first experiments. It's 1901, bigger and better. And you, you said, um, what year was, they had a lot of problems in 01 or 02? 01. Oh, one, a lot of problems now. So what changed to 1902 that alleviated some of those problems or were they just more experienced pilots? No, they changed, actually they changed the curves of their wings. They made them longer. They went from 22 feet to 40 feet long and they used a wind tunnel experiments that they tested airfoil. So they tested over 200 airfoil designs in this wind tunnel and they were testing curves that would be at the front of the wing, the middle of the wing, the bottom of the wing. They wanted to see which wing would give them the greatest amount of lift and the least amount of drag. So that's the experiments that helped them to develop the wing that they had for their 1902 version, which was a lot longer. And they put a rudder on the back because they were having problems with well digging. They called it well digging, but it was adverse yaw. Okay, that's interesting. So they, they experimented, they, they, they tried, and they improved their product to the point where now they've got some confidence. It's 1902. Now, did they go back to Ohio and come back in the wintertime, or did they just stay here the whole time, by the way? They would go back and forth because they still had to run their businesses. They had bikes to sell. Yes, absolutely, yes, because they're funding their complete experiments out of their own pocket, okay. not asking for any outside money, so they have to go home and run these businesses. Okay, so they're inventors, they're part-time inventors, and they're full-time bike builders. Okay, so 1903 comes, and now they're down here again. Do they come, like, in the fall, or do they come in the spring or when do they well I would imagine the fall early fall they come in September okay yeah they come in September and it takes them quite a while to work out all the kinks on the flyer and uh, by December December it takes them until December to get everything worked out the propeller shafts were a problem engine vibrations so by December they finally have a flyer that works from September until December they're working out all those kinks gotcha so the it took them about three months to work those kinks out now they've got some confidence 
and they've got the steady breezes. I know you've only been here for about a month or so, but <laughs> we are only, we've only been here all day, you know, and it's already, it's been breezy all day long. Mm -hmm. So this is a pretty good spot for those ocean breezes. And that, in fact, like you said, they, they corresponded with folks here to, to make sure that they had it. So they had this good weather and they've got their confidence up. And you know, why did they pick the day of December 17th. There was there anything running up to that 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 meant that that was going to be the day, or just happenstance? Happenstance, really, because um, they had uh, a previous failed attempt on December 14th. They tried it from the hill, Big Kill Devil Hill, and Wilbur had tried it, and um, he stalled it out and broke the front elevator on the flyer. So they had to repair that. It took them two days to repair the front elevator, and then they needed wind and they didn't get it that third day. So it was December 17th when they finally got wind that gusted at 27 miles an hour, but they got the wind on December 17th. And, and they were like, it's now or never because they had promised their family they'd be home by Christmas. So uh -huh. they're running out of time. <laughs> oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. <laughs> so they, they only had another week to go and they of course had to get back up there. And this was obviously before air travel. So it was right. gonna take a while to get back home. Right. So December 17th, they had a little pressure on them. Uh, they had a week to go before the holiday. Mm -hmm. And so they get out here now, it was uh, early in the day or midday or what time of day? So they wait, they know that the winds are gusting early. So they wait until 10 o'clock and know that they're not gonna let up any time. So uh, 10 o'clock, they put a flag on the side of their hangar that notifies the life-saving crew at the beach to help them out because this is a 600 pound piece of equipment. Oh, gotcha. Hard to drag around. Um, and th these are the Coast Guardsmen that, that ended up being prominent in this story. Absolutely, okay. absolutely. So they come over and help them out. By 10.30, that's when they do their first flight. 10:30 in the morning. Yeah. Okay, so 600 pounds, and they're and it's basically they're they're sledding it out there. I mean, they're dragging it out from their workshop room. So they needed help. How, do you do you remember how many people were helping them? Five. Five people helped them. Okay, and so now they had a camera. Now I guess they were part-time photographers. That or they were very press savvy. Uh, you earlier told us that they were um, they wanted to be have a secure site where the press wouldn't be climbing all around. But they had to know something about photography because there's a first flight photo is an iconic picture. And there's a cool story that comes with that photo. Mm -hmm. Hate to put you on the spot, Amy, but tell us a little bit about that. Well, the story as I hear it <laughs> is that now it's Orville's turn because they had flipped a coin you know, to uh, first flight and Wilbur won. So on December 14th, when that didn't work, now it's Orville's turn to fly. Now Orville has always been the one to take pictures, always. And um, guess what, he's not doing that day. He's not taking pictures because he's going to fly. So um, he asks John Daniels to take the picture. John Daniels is one of the life-saving crew. They've never seen a camera before. It's a squeezy bulb one. So Orville tells him how to work it. You squeeze the bulb as soon as you see the flyer take off from the rail. And so um, John Daniels stations himself behind the camera, and Orville gets on the flyer. And as it goes into the air, apparently John Daniels squeezed the ball, but he didn't know he did that. He had no idea. So when they asked him, did you get the picture? He said, I don't know. He goes, I was so excited. I don't know if I squeezed the ball. <laughs> so they don't find out until they get home after Christmas when they develop that oh, really? glass plate. Because this was like glass plates back yeah. in the day. And this is like real chemicals and things like that. Absolutely. That is cool. So even they didn't know if it was captured with that camera, right. but, but John Daniels did get the picture. He did. And it's a great photo. It's an yeah. iconic photo. It's like the peak of the action. And I guess that's, so that's Wilbur running along on the side. Mm -hmm. so Orville's flying. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. 
taken by the most amateurist photographer ever. <laughs> amazing, amazing. So now um, you've been here, you said a couple of months already. Now we reopened the visitor center back at, towards the end of October, correct? And there was renovation, at least, it seemed like it was about two years. Absolutely, yeah. They closed in May of 2016 and didn't open until October 20th, 2018. This is a, a Mission 66 style building. So in Mission 66, the Mission 66 for the Park Service, when that was going on, it was going to happen in 1966, the 50th anniversary of the Park Service. So there was a lot of things going on to make the Park Service more cohesive for visitors. And that would include visitor centers, signage, things that would be similar at other parks. And so this building was designed, and not so much as designed, you know, for this grand building. It was, you see all these windows because we don't want to take away from your view shed. Your view shed is first flight. It's amazing. And the memorial. Yeah, so, we we got to tell um, listeners who are not seeing this on video that if you look out one window and you see the first flight monument, you look out the other window and you basically see the runway or the, the rampway. And then you see the giant field and, and, and it's just it's so open. It's amazing. It's beautiful. In fact, we saw you coming in uh, after you just were finishing up another tour. And that's when I went, went over to run out and grab you. Uh, to help us out. So um, this is a really interesting interactive area. Now I know that sometimes you guys also demonstrate the wing warping too, or at least we used to. We used to. Unfortunately, right now we can't do that because we have, um, when we installed this, the 1903 flyer, we have glass panels to protect them, to keep people from touching that because you know you want to protect your artifacts. That side is touching the glass panels when we warp it. So we're waiting for a modification before we can start showing that again. A, mod a, a modification of the showcase. Mm -hmm. I got you to, yes. to help that. So Josh Cochran and I went over and visited with with Ken Hyde over at the Wright Experience up in, uh, in Warrington, Virginia, and he explained to us how all this worked one day. It was fascinating. Uh, very cool. Tell us a little bit about the um, balance of the, the motors on one side of this, uh, I guess we would call it the, the main, it's really not a fuselage, but it's the main part of the wing, and the, and the flyer, the pilot is on the other side. The, the engine weighs 170 pounds. So does that mean that Orville and Wilbur both weighed about 170 pounds? 140. 140. <laughs> so it was a little, a little bit off balance. It was a little off balance. Ah. And that's why when you see the first flight picture, you see the it's a little chair, yeah. but you see the chair over there with a C-clamp on it. So if you look at the first flight picture, you're like, what is that little stool doing over there? Well, that's actually holding the side of the flyer over there where the engine's on because that side is heavier. So if they didn't put it there, it'd go in the sand. Oh, how cool. And that's why you see Wilbur running alongside because he picked it up and he ran alongside the so flyer. So it wouldn't drag. So yeah, we wouldn't, wouldn't drag. drag. Yeah, Okay, so they were lighter than the engine. That is really fascinating stuff. Tell me one thing that you, I know you had to do a crash course on all this and your knowledge is, is incredible. We hated to put you on the spot, but what is one thing that stands out in your mind that you just had no idea that they did? Oh my goodness. There's so many things that, oh, I mean, I say then. it, I say it all the time when I'm talking about, when I do my program. So, um, um, well, give us a few things. <laughs> um, I'm trying to think like right off the top of my head, the things that I've discovered about them. We know they were pretty private individuals. They were, they were, they were 
pretty private, absolutely. One thing that I, I found fascinating is the way they would argue. They would argue, and like if they had a problem and they were arguing, they would argue opposite sides, right? But by the end of the conversation, by the end of the argument, they've already taken up the other person's side and started arguing that person's side. So that's a very interesting <laughs> way because we usually stay on our side and we don't give up. <laughs> they were trying to see the other brother's point of view mm -hmm. and they were often swayed by that. Uh -huh. That is interesting. I, I had read that earlier. That is pretty cool and that is not what you normally hear. Right, right. So they got along, they argued, but they got along well. Oh yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. Is there one other? Is there one other thing that comes to your mind? If not, I'm going to ask you a question about the propeller that's right over your right shoulder. <laughs> so one thing that I often get from visitors is the monument. So the monument, which is, it's an amazing structure, but they'll, if I'm up there and they come to me, uh, they'll say, are the brothers buried there? Ah, <laughs> right, right. That's a common question. They just think they're buried there and there's nothing in there. I mean, you used to be able to go up in the monument, um, but it's made of granite and um, here, in North Carolina, we have a lot of humidity, so there's a lot of sweating inside, and it's a small space, and it gets very slippery with the water, so it's a, it's a safety issue. Gotcha, so we can't go up in there mm -hmm. anymore inside, but we right. sure can climb up around. Now, how tall is that hill? Oh, now Put you, you on the spot. Me. You did, you It's a couple hundred feet. Yeah. It's at least mm -hmm. 100 feet tall. Yeah. I, can tell, yeah. I can see that. Now, is there a, now, it looks like that there is a light on top of that. There is, it's a beacon. So that was meant for airplanes. So gotcha. that was in the design. So it's an airplane beacon. Yeah. So does that help signify the airport that's over our shoulder here? The airport wasn't built until later. Right. So, yeah. So um, I don't know if it signifies that. I don't know. Well, it's just part of, part of the design is a, a nod to aviation, mm -hmm. if you will. Yeah. Okay. Now, there's some, uh, we talked to some folks that were out here at the, uh, at the Wright National Monument earlier today, and they commented on this actual broken propeller that is over your right shoulder. Mm -hmm. And a lot of times when you see an exhibit, you see reproductions, but that's the real deal. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's the real deal which is amazing. I love that we have those pieces here. I mean, we have, we have the propeller from, from when they were here. We have the uh, 1903 piece of um, fabric that went to the moon with Neil Armstrong over here. So I think that's, that's great. We have the sewing machine that they borrowed from Mrs. Tate. So we have a lot of those exhibits. We have a lot of those real things here and people can see that and they can see all the way around it. So what are some interesting comments that you get from people when they come out to the Wright Brothers National Monument? Right now they're in awe because of course they're happy that we're open, but also that these exhibits, um, I like that um, when I see them, they stop and they just, they want to read it. And I've had visitors that come back because you have people that live here and they'll bring their friends that come and visit them and they'll come numerous times. And every time they go through, they learn something new. I had that today. He said, I just learned something new every single time I come through here. Yeah, so, so I like that. That is cool. And now we see a lot of young people that are interested in aviation and we see them with their parents. In our business, we know that it's very important for the next generation to understand and learn more about aviation and aerospace and aerospace engineering. I mean, what do you think about all that? You're from Ohio, you, you were based in Ohio recently. That's another aviation rich state. Mm -hmm. What can you say about aviation in general? As far as for kids or? For kids, I mean, how can we get them more involved would be one question I ask a lot of people. I think hands-on, of course, you know, doing this in school. So there's a lot of activities. There's a lot of science that's involved here. There's a lot. I mean, the Wright brothers needed to know the weather because their wings are made of cloth. If the field is dewy, it's gonna get wet and you can't fly it because it'll be heavier. 
right? So they need to know how to um, predict the weather, the clouds, things like that, the wind, using anemometers. That's science. Mm -hmm. Learning the flight, you know, roll, pitch, and yaw, all of that. So there's science and flight, not just what we teach. We, so we can teach social studies, we can teach history, but there's science here too, which is really amazing. Um, and then, uh, like when I was in Dayton, they had um, programs for kids that would be like for summer programs, and they would call them the, the air crew programs, and they would take them through all the different aviation sites and, and teach them and go talk with engineers and learn how to fly rockets and get in a helicopter and things like that. So I think just getting them involved in that and knowing that it's not just a it's it's math and it's science, but it's fun. It is. It is fun. If I had that kind of stuff when I was in, in elementary and middle and in high school, I, you know, I would have gone in a different direction. <laughs> so we see a lot of excitement here. This is a beautiful new visitor center. Are there any events coming up that you want to let our folks know about? Is there anything on the horizon? We do have a couple of things. So on December 5th, we're going to have a speaker series that's going to happen at 6 p.m. Uh, in the evening, we're going to have a uh, one of our volunteers, Chris Goddard. Is uh, he actually works at the Uvar Hazy Museum in mm -hmm. or Uvar Hazy? Yeah, know, it's, it's part of the Smithsonian yeah. up in Washington D.C. Yeah. Yeah, and so he volunteers with us, and he's going to do a program on the Apollo 11. And then December 17th, of course, for the anniversary of flight, every year we have the uh, celebration that starts at about 8:30 and ends at 10:30, where the flight happened, and they lay the wreath at the memorial. How cool is that? That is neat stuff. And um, we're excited about this now. I'm not going to try to put you on the spot too much, but do y'all have any summer programs for kids? That's something I just thought about when you were telling me about the Dayton Museum. Well, so we're developing a lot of the teacher curriculum, you know, when the schools come in here. Um, summer programs for us, we have a lot of visitors that come in through here. So we do kite programs. Okay. So teaching kids how to fly the kites. And, and unfortunately, I wasn't here this past summer, so we may have done some other things with the kids. but. Um, there's always room for improvement and growth, and now that we have the visitor center, there will be more. Absolutely. That's a great answer. A great answer, Amy. Is there anything else that I didn't ask you that you want to tell our folks about? I know you've uh, spent a lot of time with us this afternoon. It's a beautiful day here down in uh, North Carolina uh, on the coast, but uh, I know you got to wrap up. It's you know time to go pretty soon, and we have to get out of here before the sun sets ah, yes. as we flew down here. <laughs> Is there anything else that I didn't ask you that you want to uh, let us know about? We are open every single day except Christmas. Except for Christmas. Except Christmas. That is the only day we are closed. Okay, I mean, you're closed on Christmas, open nine to five. What's the price of admission? The price of admission is $10 per person in the in the vehicle um, and of course if you have a park pass then you come in here for free and that is good for seven days there so. you go and if you're a private pilot like uh, josh and i are we can fly in mm -hmm. we landed at first flight airport which was an awesome event and the other thing that um that i like to let people know about is that it's just a beautiful area and it just it gave me uh, chills when we flew over and then landed it's just for aviators it's a special a special feeling do you hear that from other people too i do and one of the neat things here is of course we can watch you guys come and go land and when i'm doing programs that's really great because the end of my program how i ended you kind of try to end with inspiration they flew you know and all of this and a plane took off. <laughs> I couldn't have planned it better. But we also get um, we get military aircraft here, so we'll get Ospreys that come in and hover. And the everybody loves that Blackhawks, every kind of aircraft that you can see because this is kind of cool to come by, right? Yeah, we saw we saw a helicopter, a Coast Guard helicopter, circle the monument just because they wanted to. Right. Yes. <laughs> gotcha. What's our website that people want to check on it? So you want to go to mps.gov/backslash. WRBR, and that's for Wright Brothers. 
Sounds good. Thanks, Amy. We appreciate your time, but uh, we look forward to hearing about a great celebration on December 17th. And thank you for uh, inviting us in. And also, it's a beautiful visitor center. People need to come down and check it out. Yes, they do. Yes. And we want you to. We want to see you. <laughs>